for what binds us. There are names for what binds us. Strong forces, weak forces. Look around, you can see them. The skin that forms in a half-empty cup. Nails rusting into the places they join. Joints dovetailed on their own weight. The way things stay so solidly wherever they've been set down. And gravity, scientists say, is weak. And see how the flesh grows back across a wound with great vehemence, more strong than the simple, untested surface before. There's a name for it on horses. When it comes back darker and raised, proud flesh. As all flesh is proud of its wounds, wears them as honors given out after battle, small triumphs pinned to the chest. And when two people have loved each other, see how it is like a scar between their bodies, stronger, darker, and proud, how the black cord makes of them a single fabric that nothing can tear or mend. A ritual to read to each other. If you don't know the kind of person I am, and I don't know the kind of person you are, a pattern that others made may prevail in the world, and following the wrong God home, we may miss our star. For there is many a small betrayal in the mind, a shrug that lets the fragile sequence break, sending with shouts the horrible errors of childhood storming out to play through the broken dike and as elephants parade, holding each elephant's tail. But if one wanders, the circus won't find the park. I call it cruel and maybe the root of all cruelty to know what occurs but not recognize the fact. And so I appeal to a voice, to something shadowy, a remote, important region in all who talk. Though we could fool each other, we should consider lest the parade of our mutual life get lost in the dark. For it is important that awake people be awake. Or a breaking line may discourage them back to sleep. The signals we give, yes, or no, or maybe, should be clear. The darkness around us is deep. Beyond the zero-sum game. For centuries, insiders have been democratizing their religions. Incremental moments of institutional reform have led to a new era of theological enlightenment. From out of ancient times into the twilight of now, these reformers have made a sacred vow to never mischaracterize freedom as a zero-sum game. True freedom is not jealous. True freedom is not envious. True freedom is not spiteful. True freedom does not desire to restrict the rights of others. True freedom knows not a selfish thought, knows not how to threaten. To sense true freedom is to know that your win is my glory and that your suffering is inexorably tied to my own.
for the sum of all that is holy shines far beyond the tools of our evolving democracy, from party jingles to picket signs. The sum of all that is holy is found in our collective desire to know freedom, not as a political slogan, but as a way of life. You all ask very good questions. A few months ago, I asked you all to submit questions to me to answer during the sermon. And your questions led me in all sorts of different directions. I reworded my pastoral prayer so it is more sensitive to people who've experienced trauma. Your questions led me to develop a new adult religious education class about the habits of the heart necessary to sustain democracy. And so check the newsletter for details on that. Your questions have prompted me to think in new ways about my faith and practice and how we do church here together. And one of your questions inspired this sermon. Your questions are inspiring and challenging, and please feel free to share them with me me anytime you want to. You don't need to store them up for that particular Sunday. The question that inspired me today is this one. I have noticed that when groups meet for particular purposes, like religious education or our whole lives classes, they often begin by creating a covenant. Are there more comprehensive, enduring covenants? Covenants specific to this congregation? Overarching covenants followed by all UU congregations? Who creates them, and how are they enforced? I think each of those questions could be a full sermon, so I am just going to start today in this exploration. Creating a covenant is a common practice among modern Unitarian Universalists. We often do it without even really considering the tradition we're stepping into as we do this. So how did we get here? To begin to answer these questions, we're going to time travel. Unfortunately, I don't have Doc Brown's DeLorean or H.G. Wells' time machine or the time machine built by SpongeBob and Plankton in the movie SpongeBob, Sponge Out of Water, waiting for us out in the parking lot. So we'll have to just imagine today, and it's probably safer that way anyway. We all know that the time-traveling stories are ripe with danger and the possibility of erasing all of us from existence. So the first stop in our journey through history is in the Near East in the 8th century before the Common Era. It is hot and dry and dusty, and the people around us have just been conquered. Even though we are nearly 3,000 years in the past, some of the names will sound familiar. In our imaginings, we will be in the small kingdom of Israel. This ancient kingdom of Israel has different geography, governance, religion than the modern Israel we know today. And beginning in the year 745 before the Common Era, this ancient kingdom was conquered by the Assyrian Empire. 
Again, Assyria sounds like a common name to us now. It sounds a lot like modern Syria, but it's not the same. A lot changes in 2,800 years. So the Assyrian Empire was a superpower of the ancient Near East with a capital in Nineveh in what is now northern Iraq. When the Assyrian Empire conquered the kingdom of Israel, they did what conquering powers did in that time and that place. They imposed a covenant, a series of promises in the form of a vassal treaty on the people they defeated in battle. The Israelites promised to be faithful and pay tribute to the Assyrian king. The covenant also included curses that the Israelites would impose on themselves if they failed to uphold the covenant. Scholars tell us that when these sorts of covenants were made, the recently defeated leaders who agreed to them cut apart a living animal and stood among the pieces of its bleeding flesh, I know it's gross, proclaiming, this is what should happen to us if we break our covenant. They were promise-making animals. And for the sake of their physical safety, they were not often promise-breaking animals. An empire's defeat of a minor kingdom thousands of years ago is a story worth telling today only because of what happened next. A prophet in the Israelite kingdom proclaimed that the Israelites' covenant is not with the Assyrian empire, but with their God, Yahweh. This innovation and religion is recorded in the Hebrew scriptures and attributed to a prophet named Hosea. This was a radical adaptation and transformation. The ancient prophet took the tools of the oppressor and used them in a new way, used them to tell a story about a God with a chosen people, a God who is on the side of the oppressed. This radical new idea of covenant transformed the form of a secular treaty into a supernatural promise and reminded the people of Israel that their God, not the Assyrian Empire, was the ultimate authority in their lives. Instead of the Assyrian emperor demanding his subjects' highest allegiance, Yahweh demanded that his followers have no other gods before me. Instead of the Assyrian Empire punishing disloyalty, Yahweh would curse those who were unfaithful. The people of ancient Israel were promise-making animals. This idea of covenant with Yahweh spread widely in ancient Israel and nearby regions. This new idea of religious covenant shaped the writings and stories that became the Hebrew Bible, much of which had not been formalized yet at this time of the Assyrian victory. This idea of a divine covenant is found throughout the Hebrew Bible. Jewish theologian Martin Buber calls humanity a promise-making, promise-breaking, promise-renewing animal. And the Hebrew Bible is a testament to that. It is, in large part, stories of promise-making, promise-breaking, and promise-renewing. The God of the Hebrew Bible covenants with Noah after the flood, promising not to destroy the world again and naming the rainbow a symbol of that promise. That God covenants with Abraham to make the Israelites a chosen people and with Moses at Sinai. Large portions of the book of Deuteronomy are a near word-for-word adaptation 
of an Assyrian covenant with a conquered people, but with Yahweh playing the role of Assyria. Covenant as a religious idea has been with us ever since. So covenant becomes a religious idea 2,800 years ago in what was an ancient Near Eastern backwater. And how do we get from there to a classroom of Unitarian Universalists making a covenant together? It's time for the next stop on our journey through time. So let's step into Mr. Peabody and Sherman's Wayback Machine, or the TARDIS from Doctor Who, or Arthur Dent's time-traveling Chesterfield sofa from the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. I asked on Facebook this week what people's favorite time-traveling devices are, and these are all, or mostly all, choices from people in our congregation. So we're traveling across time and across continents. We see the years go by in a blur. We see the formation of Christianity and fast forward. Many of the earliest followers of Jesus believed that Jesus and his ministry created a new covenant, largely canceling the covenants of the Hebrew Bible. The ancient idea of covenant was adapted and transformed again to suit a new context. We step out of our time machine in 1637 of the Common Era in what would become Dedham, Massachusetts. We are no longer among ancient Israelites, but English Puritans. These Puritans have recently arrived in New England after sailing across the Atlantic Ocean. They are the 30 or so English families that found Dedham, a community about 12 miles southwest of Boston on land taken from Native Americans. They built houses and planted fields, and then once they've settled in a bit, they decide they should have a church in their town. The families were strangers to one another, all from different places in England, and didn't know what kind of church they wanted to be together. What would we do in this situation? Probably something similar to what actually happened. The Dedham Puritans formed a discussion group, So every Thursday night, they met in someone's home to talk about the most important issues in their community and how they wanted their new church to respond to them. They had these weekly discussions for nearly a year. They spoke of how their new town could be a place of justice and peace. And then months after their discussions began, they touched on their beliefs about God and the Bible. And they realized that unity of belief wasn't as important as their commitments to one another, their shared hopes of how they might be together. When they founded their church, they formalized their commitments in a written covenant. And those who joined the new town church in Dedham would promise to, and bear with me through the archaic language, Through ye help ye Lord, live together in this our holy fellowship, according to ye rule of love, in all holy watchfulness over each other, and faithful mutual helpfulness in ye ways of God, for ye spiritual and temporal comfort and good of one another. That's really different from the ancient covenants. There are no curses in it. And we know that the Puritans sometimes expelled people who did not abide by community norms or who voiced dissenting beliefs, but that wasn't written into the Dedham Church's covenant. 
Another significant difference is that the promise of this covenant is not between a people and their God, but among the people themselves. They describe their hopes and dreams for their community and promise to live into them as much as they can. True, as good Puritans, they wanted the Holy's help to live according to the ways of God, but they did not make their promises to God, but to each other. They were promise-making animals. They promised to live together according to the rule of love. They promised faithful, mutual helpfulness. They promised holy fellowship. This is not so different from this congregation's covenant, which we call our bond of union, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Our beliefs and Puritan beliefs are very different, obviously. The Puritans were not known for their religious tolerance. They would likely be horrified by the diversity of belief and non-belief in our congregation. Even so, our congregational covenant and the Dedham congregation's covenant echo one another. There's a reason for that. The reason is that the church that was founded with this covenant in Dedham is now, after a fascinating history that would require its own time-traveling adventure to explain fully, is now known as First Church and Parish in Dedham Unitarian Universalist. The 30 families who founded that church centuries ago surely had no idea that their little town church would now be a Unitarian Universalist congregation. Those Puritans would be pretty surprised with what we've done with the place. Though the covenants would sound familiar. In the Dedham Covenant and the covenants of a number of early New England congregations, we see the roots of who we are with one another today. We see the roots of our highest hopes for our community. So now let's climb back into our Klingon bird of prey to slingshot around the sun or step into Bill and Ted's excellent phone booth to continue our journey through space and time. The next stop is Kalamazoo, Michigan in 1892. We're no longer gathering with Puritans, but Unitarians, members and friends of the newly renamed People's Church of Kalamazoo. We gather downtown with our forebearers in the newly constructed building at the corner of Lovell and Park Streets, a building that some of us here today remember. It was this church's meeting place until about 45 years ago. Then, People's Church's minister was a young woman named Caroline Bartlett. It was a pretty big deal for a woman to be in ministry then. It was new and notable. And most of the first Unitarian women ministers, who were a lot of the first women ministers, period, in the world, served in the Midwest, the more radical part of the Unitarian fold then. It wasn't just the affirmation of women in ministry that made those Midwestern Unitarians so radical. They questioned whether everyone in a church had to believe the same thing to be a congregation together. We know the answer to that now. We know that a strong community could be created based on shared values and shared commitments, not shared belief. But this was a hot debate 130 years ago. Those advocating this new way and religion called themselves the Western Unitarian Conference. 
and they were led by Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, a minister based in Chicago. Jones was a mentor to Bartlett and to a lot of the women ministers of the area. And he preached Bartlett's installation at People's Church. And some of you remember that last spring, Megan Lloyd-Joyner, a Unitarian minister and a dear friend of mine, and a relative of Jenkin Lloyd-Jones, they share that Lloyd. It's also the same Lloyd as Frank Lloyd Wright. She preached my installation service here. And I invited her in part because of this historical connection. So these Western Unitarian radicals, and as a person from Seattle, I really have a challenge to call this the West, but I'm, this is what they called themselves. And it was the West then. They didn't think that, that shared belief had to be the basis for religious community. And so they took the creeds that were common in the Unitarian tradition then and changed them. They took out references to Jesus and God. They put in what were called liberty clauses. So there'd be a statement of belief, but then it would say, but you don't have to believe this. You can still be part of us. <laughs> and one of the things they did was adopt bonds of union in their congregations, which are covenants by a different name. It's the promises that people make when they become a member of the church and commit themselves to being part of this community. And the bond of union here at People's Church was adopted in 1892. And there's been a few edits along the way, but it has largely been the same. And I know, since we've been saying it often this church year, a few of our children have it memorized. But in case you don't, here it is earnestly desiring to develop in ourselves and in the world honest, reverent thought, faithfulness to our highest conception of right living, the spirit of love and service to all people, and allegiance towards all the interests of morality and religion as interpreted by the growing thought and purest lives of humanity. We join ourselves together hoping to help one another in all good things and advance the cause of pure and practical religion in the community. We base our union upon no creed test, but upon the purpose herein expressed, and welcome all who wish to join us to help establish truth, righteousness, and love in all the world. One of the interesting things that I learned as I looked into this history this week is that a lot of the bonds of union among these Western Unitarian conference churches echo one another. The bond of union of First Unitarian Universalist Church of Omaha speaks of right living and pure religion. The Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Erie, Pennsylvania devotes themselves to the cause of truth, righteousness, and love in the world. Everyone was cribbing from one another back then. The ministers still do this work, but they were borrowing the especially good lines. And so we share that heritage beyond ourselves. And again, our bond of union, our covenant, is an adaptation and a transformation. It's different from the Dedham congregation's covenant in important ways. God doesn't make an appearance. As our, church, as our tradition journeyed across the centuries, the words we use for the most ultimate and most intimate in our lives have changed. But the focus on love and community remains. 
Our covenants remain the promise we make to one another. Our promises to support one another and work together. First, a covenant was the promise between a conquering empire and a defeated kingdom. And then a covenant was the promise between a people and their God. Next, covenants became a promise between people with calls for God's assistance to help them live into those promises. And now for us, covenants are the promises between people connected by their shared commitment to their religious community, but not by shared belief. And we know that this adaptation and transformation of covenants is not over. I kind of wish I could take you into the future to see what it would be like in a few hundred years, but I have no idea. Ours is a living tradition that adapts and transforms in response to an ever-changing world. So let's splash into the hot tub time machine or use Hermione Granger's time turner or Dumbledore's pensive to get back to the present day. Welcome home. We've been on quite a journey. I know our journey didn't take us to all of the answers to that wonderful question asked earlier, and I am hoping to touch on those in the future. So as we settle back into our present, I want to lift up a piece of the, of the first song that we sang today. And I don't think you could hear David's beautiful harmony very well, but it's the next line in the poem by Rumi that we were singing. So we sing the come, come, whoever you are, wanderer, worshiper, lover of leaving. Ours is no caravan of despair. And the next line, which is fascinating that it's left out of our hymnal, is though you've broken your vow a thousand times. Isn't that rich? To still be inviting people, inviting one another back in because we are always falling short of our covenants. And we fall short of them in myriad ways. But I think we need to sing and, and know that saying you are welcome even though you've broken your vows often means the hard work of repentance and understanding and forgiveness but that is part of our covenant too, is the recognition that we are not always faithful to our highest conception of right living. And we might all have different ways of thinking we live out truth, righteousness, and love. And so we are constantly committing and recommitting, doing the hard work of self-examination and learning and closing that gap between what we say and who we are. And that is the challenge of the religious life. So may we look around and know that this congregation, this gathered community is bound together by promises, that we join ourselves together, hoping to help one another in all good things and advance the cause of pure and practical religion in the community. We base our union upon no creed test but upon the purpose herein expressed and welcome all who wish to join us to establish truth, righteousness, and love in all the world. May it be so. May, may we make it so. And amen.